Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. It's another daytime recording. Yeah, so I'm still waking up. You never know what you're going to (laughs) get. Well, we are on week two. Of horror movie versus reality. Wow. The kittens are, the cats are squawking in there. Yeah. Um, this week we will be talking about the real story behind. Wait, are we going to do Patreon? Uh, sure. Should we wait to the end of the pod? No, just do it now. Okay. We're going to thank the people who subscribed to our Patreon this past week. Patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Heather, Sherelle, Aaron, Caroline, Jasmine, Tiki, Kells, Big Dub, Colleen, Kalina, Bianca, Dagmara, Robin, ML, Tiffany, Julie. That's Miss Patrice, if you're nasty. Christina, Lily, Mattia, Judy, Jessica, Jamie, Ashley, Candace, Caitlin, Leah, Chad, Brianne. Shannon, Lauren, Hunter, Mary, Kenneth, Michael, Courtney, Christy, Leslie, Timothy, and Mari. Thank Thank you, you guys. So this week we will be talking about the real story behind the movie Eaten Alive. Eaten Alive is a 1976 horror movie directed by Toby Hooper, who has directed movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, and The Mangler. You just brought that movie up, didn't you? Yes, I did bring The Mangler up. Why did I bring The Mangler up? Maybe for um, the Patreon poll. I suggested that that was one of our (laughs) movie club movies. Yeah. So some of the stars of this movie include Carolyn Jones, who played the original Morticia Adams on the TV show back from, what is that, the 60s? Robert England is in it. Freddy Krueger. And Kyle Richards from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. She is the little girl star of this movie. And there's a a ton of good pictures from her, of her from this movie. We'll post on our our Instagram. So the first paragraph of the Wikipedia um, description of this movie really made me laugh. So I'm going to read it to you. I mean, you got to, you're going to want to watch it if you haven't seen it after hearing this paragraph. After refusing a demand for anal sex from an aggressive customer named Buck, by the way, Buck is played by Robert England, (laughs) naive prostitute Clara Wood is evicted from the town brothel by the madam, Miss Hattie, that is Carolyn Jones. Clara makes her way to the decrepit Starlight Hotel, located deep in the remote swampland of rural Texas, where she encounters the hotel's mentally disturbed proprietor, Judd. Suffering from his own demented sexual frustrations, he attacks Clara with a pitchfork, then chases her outside, where she is attacked and eaten by his pet, Nile Crocodile, that lives in the swamp beside the hotel. Now, (laughs) Kyle Richards' family eventually comes, and this guy, he has a 
Judd has a crack-induced reign of terror after this initial accidental eating of a guest. Then he starts making it a part of his deal. Kyle Richards' um, family, Kyle plays a little girl named Angie. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Very 70s. And yeah, I mean, Kyle is like a big star. This is one of her starring roles. She has a lot to do in this uh, movie. She's hiding under porches. She's running all around the thing. Like, it's a, a big deal. Now, while you might think this sounds ridiculous, it couldn't possibly be true. It is, in fact, inspired by a real life, life man named Joe Ball. Joey Ball. He is known as the Alligator Man, the Butcher of Elmendorf, and the Bluebeard of South Texas. Now, for a long time, the story of Joe Ball was thought to be apocryphal. Just part of Texas folklore, or at least the stories about him, because obviously the man really existed. But did he really do what these seemingly tall tales indicated? Or were they just scary stories children told to each other, urban legends? Was the alligator man really one of the first serial killers who murdered dozens of women and then fed their bodies to his pet reptiles? Do we know? <laughs> I bet we you're going to tell us. We did not know. For very for many decades after he supposedly committed his crimes, it had been difficult to assemble a factual account because most of the investigators and eyewitnesses were long dead or just unable to be found. It wasn't until an investigative reporter named Michael Hall decided to dive deep into this myth and managed to find the final surviving witnesses and piece their recollections together with whatever reports and evidence about the case remained uh, that we finally got the complete story on Joe Ball. That story is called Two Barmaids, Five Alligators, and the Butcher of Elmendorf and was published in Texas Monthly uh, in 2002. Obviously, it's one of my main sources for this show because it's like the most detailed account and every other person uses this account uh, and the other things I looked at, including a book called The Alligator Man, The True Story of Joe Ball by Peter Dove. And there's a lot of old newspaper articles as well that I found because this case was pretty um, big at the time. So let's get into it. Now, some people believe Joe Ball had evil in his genes. He was the great-great-grandson of John Hart Crenshaw, who was considered to be one of Illinois' most notorious citizens. Crenshaw became wealthy through several salt mines he owned in Illinois. And although slavery was technically illegal in the Illinois Territory, Crenshaw and others operated a black market where they sold slaves and free black people in an illegal like transaction, the traditional tales of um, Southern Illinois say that he, Crenshaw, would frequently kidnap free black people and escaped slaves and force them to work in his mines. <gasps> this supply of legal uh, labor came courtesy of a private army called Night Riders who roamed Ohio River looking for freed slaves or free black people to take in. This is often referred to as the reverse Underground Railroad. That's horrible. Yeah, pretty pretty, uh, disgusting. So state authorities actually did try to prosecute Crenshaw for this uh, crime at least twice, but obviously he always got off. And he lived out the rest of his years in his Hickory Hill estate. So... It is with this cursed lineage we get to the story of Joe Ball. It keeps like auto-correcting to Bell, so hopefully I, can, I, always, I always fix it. 
Around 1885, Joe Ball's dad, Frank Ball, moved to Elmendorf, Texas. This is a small town that's about 15 miles southeast of San Antonio and had been recently founded when he moved there by a man named Henry Elmendorf. This guy would later become mayor of San Antonio. So Frank's goal was to become very rich in Texas, like many before him. After he arrived, he borrowed some money from the bank, opened factories to process cotton, and as luck would have it, a railroad ran tracks right through town, which helped his business explode, and he became very wealthy. He took that money and began began increasing his wealth by buying and selling properties. He bought a general store in town, and he and his wife, Elizabeth, had eight children, Um, And they lived in one of the first stone homes to be built in the area. So they were like a prominent family in Elmensdorf. Every one of his children also prospered. Um, They became important figures in the community. Frank Jr. um, worked for the school district. uh, Raymond opened his own grocery store. Um, And then Jane, Jane, uh, who was married to Raymond, uh, was appointed by President FDR, I'm sorry, President FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to become postmaster and serve the community for 27 years. The town was eventually incorporated in 1963, and its first mayor was Raymond Ball, Joe's brother. But Joe was sort of the black sheep of the family. He was born on January 7th, 1896, and his childhood was pretty much uh, him being a loner and an oddball. Uh, He pretty much kept to himself. He did not participate in any other activities with any children. And he spent his time outdoors fishing and doing that kind of stuff. (laughs) As he reached um, his teen years, he uh, began his love of guns. It's always a good sign. He loved guns. He would spend several hours every week practicing, shooting targets, whatever. In an interview with the Texas Monthly, uh, in the Texas Monthly article, his nephew, Bucky Ball. His nephew's name is Bucky? Yeah, Bucky Ball. He said, my uncle could shoot a bird off a telephone line with a pistol from the bumper of his Model A Ford. So Bucky will come back into play a little bit because he's one of the people who gets interviewed a lot in this uh, article. On April 6, 1917, when the U.S. went into, uh, joined into World War I, Joe enlisted and he went off to the front lines in Europe. There is no uh, records of his service in the military, like what he did or if he had any sort of medals or whatever, um, but he did survive, obviously. And he received an, received an honorable discharge from the army and returned to Elmendorf. Some people who knew him back then said he came back different. So he does work with his father for a while and then eventually quits. And some people really say he had a lot of uh, difficulties going back into civilian life after uh, spending all that time, obviously, on the front lines. He did not want to follow in his father's footsteps, but he was a businessman at heart. So he quickly determined that with the advent of prohibition, there was a huge demand for him to sell illegal whiskey and beer. While his dad made his fortune with the cotton gin, Joe made his with gin. He, he just jumped right into his life as a bootlegger. Um, he's a big guy. He is six foot tall, like over 160 pounds. People described him as intimidating, but he would drive around in his Model A4, Model A4 with a big, huge barrel of whiskey in it and just drive house to house and give people like a shot, I guess, uh, or like fill up their little fucking bottles or something. Um, at some point, according to Elton Q Jr., 
This is a guy that was interviewed in Texas Monthly. His dad was the deputy sheriff of Elmendorf during this period. Uh, he said that Ball wasn't near as good looking as they describe in those Texas, those detective magazines, but he was very dangerous. I guess he was described as hot. <laughs> I've, I've seen pictures of him. He's, he's, he's not hot. No, but I, I, we'll get into the detective magazines because they really build up a lot of this lore. Um, but Joe was doing really well. He began hiring uh, help, including a young black man named Clifton Wheeler, who would help him around the house and help him with his bootlegging business. Wheeler was a handyman, and he did a lot of the manual labor and dirty work that Joe didn't want to do, basically. But Wheeler lived in fear of Joe Ball. Uh, People talk about how he would literally do the thing where he shot at Wheeler's feet to make (gasps) him dance. Like that crazy thing. And as I mentioned, Wheeler is black. He didn't really have a lot of options to deal with Joe. He kind of just had to put up with it because, you know, he was scared. Um, Bucky, though, has a different version. He thinks that Joe was very kind-hearted. And he even recalled a story of his uncle paying for a poor Mexican-American couple to go to the doctor to have their baby. So I guess he did one nice thing, if that's true. (laughs) Right. I don't know why people bring up those. It's like he wasn't all bad. He wasn't always shooting at people's feet. Um, Prohibition, obviously, as we all know, ends. And so did Joe's bootlegging career. So he had like a little bit of a financial setback. He did know a lot about liquor and beer. So his next natural step was to open a saloon. He purchased a small parcel of land and he built a tavern that he named the Sociable Inn. In the back, they had a few bedrooms that he would rent out. They had a player piano. They had tables where men could play cards and drink. And he also put up occasional cockfights. That's what type of place this was. Real rowdy. Now, uh, Joe was always on the scene. He was the man about the sociable inn. And he was getting a reputation as being a creepy guy and someone you did not want to make mad. So even though the business was doing well, he wanted to come up with a gimmick to draw even more customers in, and he settled on the idea of having alligators. So he <laughs> <laughs> he dug a hole behind the bar, uh, cemented it, made, made basically like a crude pool, filled it with water. He had a 10-foot-tall fence surrounding this pool, and in the pool were five live alligators. That's a great mix, drunk people and alligators. Yeah. So it worked Lots of drunk people came in because they wanted to see these alligators. And look, I'm going to get into a little bit of information here that is pretty disturbing because one of the things they would do was have a show where they would throw live animals in (gasps) to these pits with the alligators. Yes. So people would bring them in. Like if they found a possum on the side of the road, they'd bring that in. Oh, They would bring in pet animals, cats, dogs, (gasps) yes, and get drunk. They would pay money to throw them in and watch the alligators basically eat them. Uh, Basically. They they did eat them, Well, they might have just snapped them in half or something. I don't know that they ate them. So, yeah, I mean, there's some stories. I'm not going to get into details. You get the idea. But Joe was really the ringleader. He made a real show out of this. there's more to come, like, like just like leading these drunk people into this like bloody, like disgusting show. This guy um, sucks. Getting them all hyped up. In addition to his alligators, 
Joe's male customers also love the fact that he hired really young and pretty girls to be the barmaids and waitresses in the uh, saloon. Uh, But none of them seemed to stay for too long. He always explained that these were girls who just drifted in and out of town, looking for a quick buck and then leaving to go to the next thing. So one woman who stayed around for a little bit was a woman named Minnie Godhart, known as Big Minnie. Big Minnie? Yeah. This was at about 1934. She started working at the inn, and people didn't really like her. She was big. She was bossy. (laughs) She was very displeasing, and some people considered her a very obnoxious person. Part of that might be because there were a lot of drunks in this, and many knew how to put them in their, their place. Like She ran a tight ship, and she was intimidating. But Ball and her uh, got along, she ran the bar with him, and eventually that became a sort of romantic relationship for about three years before a new woman came along that Ball had an interest in. This woman's name was Dolores Buddy Goodwin. Her nickname was Buddy. Uh, So if I call her Buddy later, we're talking about Dolores. And she was 15 years younger, so Minnie was not happy. Um, Dolores fell in love with Joe, and... This was despite the fact that he is an abusive prick. Like one night at the bar in 1937, he threw a bottle at Dolores, hit her in the face, and she had a scar that ran from her eye down to her neck. Jesus. Uh, So, yeah, needless to say, uh, Minnie was no fan of Buddy, as I mentioned, and she didn't really give a shit that Joe was abusive to her. She was like thinking about herself. Um, She, this love triangle became uh, pretty hostile and made the workplace not too great. Um, So soon after that assault, another girl came in looking for a job and the love triangle became a love square. (laughs) 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 This girl was even younger. She was 22-year-old Hazel Shotzi Brown. Everyone has a nickname in this town. You got to have a nickname at a saloon. That's true. (laughs) So she begins working at the bar. She's very... um, cute. She's really pretty. Like of all the three women, she's definitely like the looker. She has a lot of confidence and Joe uh, fell in love with her almost immediately as well. And now he's trying to balance three women uh, who all work at the bar and Shotzi and Buddy kind of team up uh, against many. So she's sort of even pissed, even more pissed and really feeling left out of this group of girls. She's like, (laughs) she's the oddball. She was like, I'm the OG bitch. Yes. You need to respect me. No, she as much as as much respect as she got from the drunks in the bar, she did not get from these two little uh, young ladies fucking her man. But luckily for Joe, that summer, many skipped town, and he didn't have to deal with her anymore. Uh, so we'll take a break here, and we'll get back and find out what happened to Minnie. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. So people started wondering what happened to Minnie. She was such a presence at this saloon. And Joe Ball started telling people that the reason she left town is that she got pregnant by a black man and was so full of shame she had to leave the area and have the baby elsewhere. She didn't take anything with her, though. She left all of her stuff in the um, quarters where she lived. Hmm. Uh, So in September, Joe marries Dolores. And to her, he reveals his secret. He had taken Minnie to the beach and killed her. That's what he told Dolores. And uh, Minnie would no longer be making trouble for him and Dolores. Now, he supposedly, I'm sorry, Buddy then told Shotzi about what happened with Minnie as well. And in January of 1938, another thing happened to one of uh, Joe Ball's women. Apparently, she was in a really bad car accident. And during this car accident, her arm was cut clean off. Wait, which of his women? Dolores, his wife. Uh, So now... Speculation began immediately about what really happened. People thought that he cut her arm off and threw it to the alligators. I mean, cut clean off in a car accident? 
I don't know how it would have happened. I mean, maybe it got so damaged it had to be amputated. But yeah, it was very suspicious and people uh, started spreading rumors almost immediately about this. And he's still seeing Shotzi during his marriage too. Like that has not ended. I bet people in this town are like spreading these horrific rumors about Joe Ball, but they're like, we're still going to go to the bar, right? <laughs> yeah, like it's they, the only place in town. They still patronize his bar. <laughs> it made it more interesting. Now in April, Dolores disappears. Uh-oh. He is still seeing Shotzi. She's not phased by this disappearance. <laughs> and then she disappears. See what happens? Yeah. The women in Joe's life are coming and going, but his only constant companions are his gators, who he does take very good care of. Now, he is very protective of these gators. Um, even one time when a neighbor complained about the smell of rotting meat coming from this pit, he pulled out a gun and explain that it's the alligator food to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and the nosy neighbor should mind his own fucking business if he didn't want to become food. Oh. So he started threatening people, uh, and that neighbor supposedly moved. Now, <laughs> despite the fact that Joe's help and his girlfriends keep disappearing, because there's more people disappearing, not just these three women, like you mentioned, the business continues to thrive. People are still showing up, partying. They enjoy the alligator pit. And things are going pretty smooth until mid-1938 when Minnie's family began to ask where she is and what he knows because they don't know where she is. They had been unable to locate her, and they actually go to the sheriff's office. Now, Joe was obviously the last person known to be with Minnie. He was her lover and employer. So he is questioned several times, but there's no evidence of foul play. So he is dismissed as a suspect. A few months later, another family goes to the police looking for their missing daughter, a 23-year-old named Julia Turner. She had worked part-time for Joe Ball. And once again, the sheriffs go to the tavern. They interview Joe and he claims that, oh, she, yeah, she told me she had a lot of personal problems and wanted to escape and move on from her family without them knowing. Did the cops also go to this bar? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, okay, well, then I'll have a beer. <laughs> You've done all you can. They had nothing to go on, though. So once again, nothing moves forward with this one. Uh, they do eventually go search the home of Julia that she had. Uh, she shared this with a roommate. And they discover that she also didn't take any of her clothing or belongings when she did this escape. She just left. Uh, they do return and ask Joe more after finding this out. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She was in a pretty desperate state when she left. So I did give her $500 because um, she didn't want to go home. She had, she had some issues with her roommate, and that's why she left all of her stuff. So he's just a good guy helping this girl escape. Now, during the next few months, more employees go missing. Uh, He's losing his whole staff. <laughs> Luckily, people are coming in and out of town, I guess. They bring him in once again for questions. They question him for hours on end. It's still nothing. He maintains his innocence. And they just constantly move on because there's no evidence, even though they have this growing list of people missing. On September 23rd, 1938, his luck finally runs out. An old neighbor of his comes forward and tells investigators that he has witnessed Joe cut meat off a human body and feed it to the alligators. Now, an investigation, investigators are like, well, what do we do with this information? How do we move forward? What do you do with it? Because <laughs> it's still, there's still no proof, I guess. And at this point, an, an older Mexican-American man approaches them. Uh, he 
he knew the sheriff. He like used to take him dove hunting. And he tells him about a foul smelling barrel covered in flies that Joe had left behind his sister's barn. It smelled, he said, like something was dead inside. Now, the women, obviously, people start thinking like that's the women. They're in this barrel. <laughs> he just keeps shoving them in there and then slowly feeding them to the gators. Um so they finally do go to look in this woman's barn. I don't know how many days it took them to do it. But when they got to the barn, the barrel was gone. Well, sounds like yeah. a heads up. So they then drove to the bar to ask Joe if he knew anything about it. And he's like, I don't know anything about that barrel. But when they finally talked to the sister, she did corroborate her brother's story uh, that there was this stinky barrel, but she doesn't know where it is. So... They go back to Ball once this story is corroborated to talk to him more. They want to take him to San Antonio for questioning. And he said, sure, uh, let me go shut my bar down and get a beer before we drive over to San Antonio. So they agree because (laughs) I don't know why, but they do. They return to the bar. He gets a beer. He takes a few slips. I'm sorry, sips and then slams the beer down. He walks over to his register, presses the no-sale button. When the drawer pops open, he reaches inside and grabs a revolver. (gasps) Now he waves this gun at the two investigators. They're screaming, don't. He points the gun to his heart and pulls the trigger and falls dead on the floor. What? Yes. So obviously at this point, they're like, well, clearly... (laughs) something's going on that he probably did that he doesn't want to get busted for. So they, more people come in and they basically go over every square inch of Joe's bar. They discover rotting meat all around the gator pond. There is also an ax matted with blood and hair. And they start, they're finally like on board. They're like, yeah, it seems like he probably (laughs) cut up his victims and fed them to the alligators. Well, he's dead now. Yeah. So, they kind of. Rec- it's only fair that he gets fed to the gators now. I know. I mean, what those gators are hungry. <laughs> Once he dies, they have no more food. Uh, I agree. So obviously, they're like, "Wait, what about all these other disappearances?" I mean, once again, incompetent, incompetent police work, right? In this case, um, there's also a teenage boy who is apparently missing, who used to hang out at Joe's. So. The horror of what has happened possibly is starting to uh, wear on them. So investigators know that what they have to do is interview Joe's handyman, Clifton Wheeler, who is probably somehow involved or knows what happened because he is the closest person to Joe Ball. They secure the crime scene uh, and then they go pick up Clifton, take him to San Antonio for questioning uh, initially. He denies knowing anything. He doesn't know. He says he doesn't know what happened to any of the missing women. But eventually he says, uh, I haven't been totally honest with you guys. <laughs> I don't know what changes his mind. Um, so he starts to explain that Joe's girlfriend, Hazel Shotzi Brown, had fallen in love with another man and was planning on moving away to start this new life with him. Uh, this pissed off Joe. Because not only was this hot piece of ass that he wanted moving and leaving him for another man, she also threatened him that she would tell uh, authorities about Big Minnie's murder. So she was also threatening him in that way. At this point, Dolores is also gone. So she also mentioned uh, Dolores that he had killed her as well. So uh, he didn't like that. And he flew off the handle and killed her. Now, investigators, of course, needed verification of Wheeler's story, and they're like, okay, well, show us where he disposed the body. 
So he took investigators to an isolated spot about three miles from town. He kind of scans the area, area, and then they began digging in this area where there is loose soil. After a few minutes, blood begins coming up through the dirt. No way. That's what it said. Like and, oil? Yeah. <laughs> Texas tea. Um, horrendous smell comes from the ground, so it's obviously that they find something. It. There's a paragraph in the article that like literally describes people like vomiting and upchucking. They use the word upchuck, <laughs> which is such a funny term. Um, but it's so gross though. Like, yeah. so it's clearly a dead body here. Now they pull up basically like the torso and everything, and they're like, where's the head? And that was buried in a separate place. Um, there was like the remains of a campfire. And in this campfire, they found jawbone, teeth, and some pieces of skull. Um, so this was Hazel Brown. Now they obviously rope off this crime scene and he said that he told of what happened that after Wheeler? a long, yeah, after a long night of heavy drinking, he said that Joe Ball asked him to get some blankets and more alcohol. They took Joe's car and drove off to this, uh, area, um, behind Joe's sister's barn where there was a 55 gallon barrel. And then they took this barrel down to this area where they were a the crime scene, basically. He said that Ball forced him at gunpoint to dig a grave, and then they opened the barrel, and inside was Hazel Brown's body. He said that he initially refused to help because they were going to cut up this body and spread it around. And then uh, in his drunken stupor, stupor, Joe couldn't do it, so it kind of forced Wheeler to have to help him as he sawed up this body. Now the two started to get sick from the odor themselves when they were doing this, and they would take breaks and drink more beer and then just keep doing it in chunks. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, bad word choice. <laughs> Desi. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. So, I mean, oh, God, sorry. Wheeler is clearly, clearly being threatened into doing this. Yeah, and I feel like this is a long-term borderline abusive relationship. I think it's abusive. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah. Think, it is abusive. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... He just keeps, you know, they keep doing it until like literally daylight. And eventually once they've buried uh, the corpse, they throw the hat in this campfire. Now, then he moves on. The cops move on to Minnie uh, Goatheart's disappearance. And Wheeler said, yeah, he killed Minnie as well. So he said that Joe took Minnie to Ingleside near Corpus Christi. Uh, They found an area and had like a little beach party with lots of drinking as dusk approached, he said that Ball told her to look at the sunset, and as she was looking, he shot her in the head. Wow. So police find her corpse buried in the sand on this beach. He said that Joe killed her because she was pregnant with Joe's baby, and he didn't want to uh, deal with that and have that interfere with his other relationships with these other women. Uh, they, he, Wheeler then helped him bury Minnie in the sand, and then they drove back to the bar Police obviously go back to the area. They find the spot in the sand, and they uh, use heavy machinery to dig up all of the sand on the beach. And they do eventually find her remains on October fourteenth, nineteen thirty-eight. They continue to question Wheeler about the other missing women, but he he's like adamant now that that's all the knowledge he has is about these two women. Um, back at Joe's bar, they do find scrapbooks containing photos of dozens of women. And they're, like, fearful they're going to find dozens more murdered. Uh, They don't really know anything at this point. But none of the photos ever proved to have any 
connection to Joe and these bodies and women are never found. So uh, investigators actually do locate Dolores in California. She is not dead. So she had apparently left the area. She really did leave the area to get away from Joe. And she moved in with her sister in San Diego. They drive her back to San Antonio to be interviewed. Um, A weird thing happens on their way back to San Antonio. They stop in Phoenix and find one of the other women listed as missing working in a tavern. Wow. So they do find another one of these missing women. Now, Dolores uh, says that Wheeler told her um, that shot, he told her about Shotzi, according to Dolores. Um, she said that he, Shotzi was threatening to, um, tell about the murder of Big Minnie and that Joe told her he hit her with his pistol. I don't, I guess he didn't say he killed her, but then she's like, well, I guess he did more than hit her with a pistol. So she did know about this argument that led to the murder. Now it did turn out that all of the rotting flesh found in the alligator pond was um was not human. None oh. of the stuff that was found there. That doesn't mean there wasn't stuff that was eaten, but whatever was remaining was not human. And Dolores actually defends Joe in a 1957 interview with the San Antonio Light. She said that Joe never put no people in that alligator tank. Joe wouldn't do a thing like that. He wasn't no horrible monster. Joe was a sweet, kind, good man, and he never hurt nobody unless he was driven to it. I don't... Okay. Yeah. There were just two murders, she said. While... Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, just two just, murders. He only murdered two people, not 20. Uh, now, obviously, all of this stuff is possible. It's possible he never did fed anyone to alligators. It's possible... These were the only two murders, but the truth is nobody really knows, and there's just no evidence because if the alligators ate the flesh, we would just never know. Like, Also, this kind of story is ripe for small town lo- lo- local legend. Oh, totally. I mean, just the f- I mean, if if somebody is found out to be a murderer in your town and they also own a bunch of alligators, the natural thought is that everyone's going to think, "Oh, they fed them to those alligators." Especially if there's a ton of missing people who are never found. Like, alligators yeah, ate them. Absolutely. So Clifton Wheeler does plead guilty for his part in disposing of the bodies. He is sentenced to 2 years in prison for this. This is bullshit. I mean, at least he only got two years. I know. It, it just been still makes worse. me mad because it's like Joe <laughs> just fucking took himself out. Yeah. And this guy has to like... Deal with the mess. De- yeah. Yeah. So he does try to open a bar in Elmendorf again when he gets out of prison. It doesn't really go over well because well, he's quite, yeah, no- he's known he's as quite notorious. <laughs> yeah. No one wants to hang out at that bar. Although it could have worked. Uh, who knows? He eventually leaves and is never heard from again. Joe's alligators are seized by the state and donated to the San Antonio Zoo. They live out the remainder of their lives uh, at this zoo. And it is at this point the legend of Alligator Man truly takes off, notably with those true crime magazines like True Detective that were very popular uh, during this time period. People were obsessed with the story Uh, stories in these magazines of the alligator man. Now these are very sorted and over the top uh, (laughs) stories. This is not, this is not the era where people try to be respectful with true crime stories. They, in fact, they make them more salacious. Right. Right. That's what these magazines uh, did. And this story was perfect uh, to do that with. Um, So they made them, I mean, I'll go into it, but Joe's, Joe's family, or at least one member, actually sues the magazines. That's how horrific these stories end up being. 
Um, but the legends continued, rumors and innuendo quickly become fact, um, especially like the juicier or more disgusting it is, the more people want to kind of believe it. Uh, and these just like fill all of those magazines for like 30 years. Um, now, obviously with the advent of the internet, things take off a little more. One of the rumors told, um, at least in the internet age is that of those like papers and photos they found, there was a letter from Minnie to Joe claiming she's going to tell everything she knew. And that's what, uh, led Joe to finally kill her. Cause she supposedly knew about all of the bodies, uh, that he chucked into the gator pit. Now, there's also a ton of eyewitness accounts from back in the day of people saying, yeah, I saw Joe chuck a body in the alligator pit. Um, he's, there's stories that people had their lives threatened after seeing him feed the alligator's body. I mean, it's just like all of this kind of eyewitness stuff that's impossible to prove otherwise uh, after the fact. He is a bad guy, though. Right. Like, we know that. In addition to the people who actually knew him I'm sorry, but the people who actually knew him, uh, they kind of have this other side of Joe um, that claim it would never happen. Like, And they just see this different side of him. But there's no excuse to murder two people. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. And he does seem like an asshole. Now, Bucky Ball, the nephew, he's obviously had to face a lot throughout his life being the nephew of Joe Ball. Um, he seems to have a sense of humor about it. Uh, like people will often be like, hey, where's your gators? Um, he even says back in 1959 at the height of these t- detective magazines, he was visiting a friend in New Jersey who knew his last name and the mom showed her son a co- one of these um, true detective novel or n- not collections that had the tale of Joe Ball. They confronted Bucky about it and he said, yeah, that's my uncle. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy for Bucky that he's very proud of this, but if that was my uncle, I would be mortified. Yeah. I mean, I guess he was trying to own it and not be ashamed. There's no owning this. It's such a stupid thing to own. I know. Um, But yeah, so that's where that story ends. Now, I did want to go back to talking about Crenshaw's house, his great, great, great grandfather, who was an awful person as well. This house still exists and it's haunted. Of course it's haunted. It's very haunted. So I wanted to give you some of the haunting stories as a little addendum to this story. Now, as we all know, these places typically will open as a tourist destination, which is like crazy uh, that people will go visit these places, but they do. And some people even get married in like plantations. Not this house, but but like on those sites, like it is crazy. Well, that is a very real thing that people do get married on plantations, which is... Yeah. Beyond me. (laughs) It's wild. (laughs) So yeah, obviously it's a tourist destination. Uh, So starting in the late 20s, it became a tourist destination. And the stories of hauntings began in the 20s. So visitors began reporting strange noises coming from the third floor, whispers, singing, and moving chains. They spent time in the attic. Uh, Those who spent time in the attic would say that they felt sensations of being touched by invisible hands or being watched by shadowy figures. Now, a self-described exorcist named Hickman Whittington visited the house uh, to kind of do some sort of like exorcism. And he said that he witnessed ghosts as well. He was in perfect health before his visit. And after he left, he became ill and died the same night, almost like immediately after attending. So people think that was uh, related. Now more tales take place over the next few decades. 
decades, um, two Vietnam veterans were challenged to stay overnight in the attic and at some point ran out of the house screaming in fright. They said they had been surrounded by ghost shapes and non-human figures. Uh, At some point, a small fire broke out from an overturned lantern in the house, and that was when the owner at the time, George Sisk, halted any visits to the house because he thought that was also related to the ghost not being happy that people were coming in. In 1978, it does open back up, and a reporter named David Rogers agrees to spend the night in the attic as a Halloween stunt for a local television station. Now, he beat out like 150 people to like get this honor, I guess. And he became the first person to spend the night in the house in more than a century. He said that he was queasy when he was in the house and that his experience was anything but mundane. He heard sounds that he couldn't identify. And he later discovered that his recorder picked up voices that he himself could not hear while he was in the house. Now, these hauntings caught the attention of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Of course. Yeah. So they're like, we got to get in on this. <laughs> so they visited the house as well in 1978. And they said, I feel like they've said this like a hundred times, that it was the most demonical place they had ever visited. <laughs> These Those bitches literally said that about the Amityville house. That's And that was, what year was that? The After se- this? The 70s. Yeah. So I don't know which was first. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Let me tell you something. The worst thing about living in a haunted house would have to be Ed and Lorraine Warren poking around. Even yeah. worse than the demonic possessions and the haunting would have to be having to deal with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Especially now when they would be ghosts themselves. <laughs> That's even worse. It's even worse that they're showing up now. It's like, we thought we got rid of you. Um <laughs> So, um, and the paranormal experiences just keep happening. It's an overwhelming phenomena at this house, supposedly. And that has caused it to be um, a a destination, especially around Halloween time. People go there trying to get their own haunted experiences. This is grim. Yeah. I mean. The whole thing. This is gross. I do want to say, though, outside of. Joe and this great great grandfather. The other, the family members all seem to have lived lives that were pretty uh, normal. Like none of them were awful people, like these two. So maybe it was like the bad seed where it skipped a few generations right. and just hit Joe. Like who knows? One speculation in the um, in the Texas Monthly, I think Bucky is like he went to war and he never got help like there was no therapy back then and the texas monthly writer was like well he probably wouldn't have taken it (laughs) even if there was help offer help offered like he wasn't that type of guy like who would have been like yeah let me go to therapy and work on my ptsd he would have just like still done what he did like so that's the story of joe ball eaten alive and this weird haunting connection and evil grandfather. And the enduring mystery of whether or not it's pronounced Toby Hooper or Tobe Hooper. To- Nobody knows. I think it's Toby because Tobe is just not cute. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to call them it's baby like, Tobe. <laughs> it's like Toe. It's like Job and it's Tobe. It's Job, but with an E. The E's got to mean something, <laughs> right? Tobe. I mean, we. I did ask people last night. I asked uh, our friend James 
And he he thought it was Toby. I've all I mean I've like I've racked my brain on this for many years. What is it? I I've, I've been saying Toby the most because I say it sounds Toby better because it sounds more natural. Yeah, I I actually looked up the spelling. Of course, it's, it's like I don't know what those phonetic marks mean. No, I know because <laughs> at first I, when I was trying to figure out the phonetic markings, I was like Toby. <laughs> Like the, like that station, yeah. the app. <laughs> I don't know. It's very confusing. And it's like not even his first name. His first name is like, I can't remember what it was. It's like Willard or something. Wait, like he chose Tobe? <laughs> it might be his middle name when I have the page open right now. Uh, so maybe that, that adds to oh, it. Oh, it's Willard Tobe Hooper. Willard Toby. Because Toby's not really a middle name. So maybe it is Tobe. <laughs> Willard Tobe Hooper. <laughs> I just always wondered how the fuck you pronounce that. Well, you, you you go on the internet and you try to find someone saying it too, but they could be wrong. You don't know. And he died. Rest in peace. And we can't even ask him. We can't ask him. Um, so yeah, the mystery remains. I did say Toby and I'm going to just go Let's with stick that. with it. I like it. It's I a like cute it name. too. It's just spelled differently. Wow, uh, Desi. That was a wild story. We have more... Where that comes from. Yeah. Uh, we'll post some good pictures from the movie and of Joe and maybe the, the women. There are some good pictures of them as well. But the movie has some great stills, yeah. uh, especially of Kyle Richards. She, what a career. What a career she's had. <laughs> like that would be my dream to be a child star in the 70s, constantly wearing prairie dresses, being on Little House on the Prairie, the dream job <laughs> of a child actor at that time. And she's in horror movies. And then she becomes a housewife. Yeah, I don't necessarily want to be that, but I like her childhood career. Like, it's a dream. And she's in uh, Escape from Witch Mountain, or is that her sister? I think they both are. Who which, Was Kyle in Watcher in the Woods with uh, Betty Davis? Because I'm I, not I sure. I thought that movie was so scary when I was a kid. They're just, I think their childhood careers are fun. Uh, the the Richard sisters. Very interesting. Yeah. Very so interesting. So I'm jealous. And yeah, we'll post some pictures of Kyle for sure. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 